I'm Patrick Heller from Brown University and uh, Salman and the Institute, thank you for organizing this very special event. Uh, by way of introduction, I just want to say that I think there's two quite extraordinary things about this event. First of all, we're talking about strong men that are not Trump or Erdogan or the usual cast of characters. There are, there are strong men in other parts of the world, which we'll be talking about today. The world's largest democracy and the world's third largest democracy. Um, and, and second, um, you know, I think um, as social scientists, we, we all suffer from parochialism. Um, we all think the cases that we study are truly, truly exceptional. Mm -hmm. And yet what's truly exceptional about this moment in global politics is that across so many different political regimes from deeply institutionalized and well-established democracies to some of the younger democracies in the world, from uh, East Asia through South Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, Europe and the United States, and of course now also Latin America, um, across the world we're seeing what appear to be very parallel phenomena of ethno-nationalist political parties coming to power through democratic means, and then sliding slowly but surely towards something that looks increasingly authoritarian. So uh, to make sense of this, I think we, we have to get beyond our parochialisms and think comparatively. So today we, we're going to do exactly that, and we're going to start with, with Bruno, and we'll go on to Rachel. They'll each speak for about 15 minutes, and then I'll do a, a little discussion moderation, uh, and then we'll open up for discussion. Okay. Bruno? Well, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Salman, so much for, for, for organizing here. I hope we do a lot more of these comparative South-South uh, uh, events. And thank you all for being here. And thank you so much, Rachel. It's an, it's an honor to be with you guys. So I'll, I'll get right to it. Uh, to, to merely describe Brazil's current president in very direct, sober ways uh, strains credulity. Bolsonaro has repeatedly defended torture, dictatorships, and often flirts with the mass murder of opponents. His speeches are full of half-truths, insinuations, outright lies. More recently, that the indigenous or NGOs are responsible for Amazonian fires, or that the forest remains, quote-unquote, practically untouched, as he stated at the UN. You don't have to veer far from his immediate circle of associates to find people engaged in a range of criminal activities, arms trafficking, extortion schemes, death squads. That's who Bolsonaro supported in his 27 years in the fringes of the Brazilian Congress as a representative of my state, Rio de Janeiro. That's the world he and his sons inhabit. This June, Spanish authorities found 86 pounds of cocaine in Bolsonaro's presidential plane. Less concerningly, we might say, in March he tweeted a video of a man urinating on another, as if this were somehow representative of Brazil's street carnival festivities, and I can assure you that it is not. So certain truths about him are, are so extreme that it puts us in a very difficult position. Just straight up listing facts about Bolsonaro makes you sound as if you're out to get him. Constant self-victimization and what we might call anxious masculinity seems to be defining traits of several of our so-called strongmen. So we often use euphemisms to avoid confrontation or appearing partial. We might say polemic or controversial. Uh, perhaps populism in uh, mainstream discourse plays a similar function. 
I wanted to quote from Jason Stanley's How Propaganda Works. That one of the basic problems for democracy rated by propaganda is the possibility that the vocabulary of liberal democracy is used to mask an undemocratic reality. So populism is a contested term, as we know, but with varying definitions. Um, in Bolsonaro's case, it's not that easy to discern the familiar, the people versus the elites setup. Bolsonaro, after all, was elected with tacit or explicit support of powerful media groups, uh, powerful groups amid what we might call the, the establishment, among them commercial media, the financial sectors, agribusiness, neo-Pentecostal churches, and the military. So just to paint a, a landscape for those not as familiar with, with the intricacies of, of, of his election. Uh, according to the latest polls before the second round of the 2018 elections, uh, which he won with 55% of the valid votes, which is about 38% of valid voters, fairly close to the percentages that the, the BJP uh, uh, has, has been winning in, in India. Uh, Bolsonaro's supporters were disproportionately uh, male, uh, he carried the male vote by almost 20 percentage points. Disproportionately old, same difference among 60 and older. He probably lost with under 24-year-olds. Disproportionately formally educated. Um, disproportionately wealthy. He had uh, uh, 61 to 31 among those who make uh, more than 10 minimum salaries. That's about $2,500 a month, um, uh, which puts you in the top 5% of Brazilian income. And disproportionately white. So according to these polls, he was at 56 to 30 among uh, uh, white folks and just barely ahead among the non-white. And support was concentrated in more developed regions of the southeast and center west, those that we might call global cities, as we were mentioning, as well as in parts of Amazonia. So in, in Brazil, it's become somewhat of a refrain in, in the left to say that Bolsonaro capitalized on a backlash of the white and privileged against social advances of the years of workers' party presidencies between 2002-2015, when indeed socioeconomic mobility and access to higher education, for example, increased. But there simply aren't enough white and privileged voters to elect a president in Brazil. Support for Bolsonaro cut across class and race, and the key is that he received nearly 70% of the evangelical vote, it seems, uh, and that's now up to 30% of the Brazilian uh, electorate. Um, early on, former president and then-candidate uh, Lula, uh, before his impris imprisonment, uh, led among evangelicals. So uh, very recently, this wasn't, this wasn't a voting bloc in, in, in recent uh, elections. So a recent word cloud of Bolsonaro's 147 speeches so far, created by uh, O Globo newspaper, looks much more theocratic than populist. Brazil, Israel, God, loom large, we don't see words like health, inequality, and education. They, in fact, don't even register in the word cloud. So how could a career politician like Bolsonaro manage to position himself as an agent of change while also representing entrenched forces within uh, political systems? And will his support hold? So the, the latest polls um, uh, have uh, about, about a third of the people saying they consider his administration to be bad or very bad. About a third consider it to be good or very good. About a third consider it to be uh, regular. So his support is dropping. His alliance 
uh, during the elections that brought together a variety of interests, uh, not all necessarily anti-democratic. So from those vying for pension reforms to those pursuing the rollback of environmental regulations. And there have been already dozens of harmful pesticides uh, uh, made legal, for example. There were also voters that wanted the state to intensify exterminationist approaches to uh, uh, murdering those poor and disproportionately black in the name of combating um, urban violence. We shouldn't imagine that to be uh, a too large of, of a segment of the, of the uh, electorate, just based on the small percentages that support, for example, his NRA-style uh, uh, agenda, NRA-like uh, agenda for, for guns. But of course, it's, 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 it's disturbing to, to, to have that as a, as a sector. And we can think that the most extremist among his supporters should have most reason to be satisfied. On the other hand, those that, through uh, justifiable disillusionment or antagonism to the Workers' Party, supported Bolsonaro because they thought he was the anti-corruption candidate, are probably the ones uh, uh, with most reason to be deeply disappointed. Bolsonaro has so far at every turn made or tried to make appointments to stall investigations against one of his sons and has not shown any commitment to fighting corruption, uh, shocking no one who followed his career in Rio. So as, as someone who works most of the time as a cultural historian, not as a political scientist, um, and who has studied authoritarians in, in the past, uh, many of which we, we now think of as populists, I think it's important to speculate about the possibility that political continuities and historical roots that help to explain Bolsonaro's rise to power can actually hinder our understanding of the extent and depth of contemporary transformations, particularly in the role of digital uh, uh, social media in politics. It could be that uh, an economy in crisis was the decisive factor in his election. Um, during the campaign, he suffered an attempt on his life, so we have to wonder how things would have gone if that hadn't happened. But we also have to take seriously the impact of uh, WhatsApp groups and similar uh, digital spaces. So one of the most recurrent tropes uh, of Brazil's last campaign was the idea that only Bolsonaro and his allies could save Brazilian children from being corrupted by, by government-issued gay kids to be distributed in schools. So this was, this was false. This was even tame compared to the uh, other made-up claims. But according to one poll, over 80% of Bolsonaro voters believed in it. So I'm about to show you some graphic images you know, just to those that uh, should be ready for it. Um, so one of those claims besides the, the, the Kishi Gay, the gay kit, was that uh, baby bottles with shaped like penises were going to be distributed if his opponent uh, won. Um, so th there's an aesthetic dimension to, to this uh, 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 sort of repertoire that, that I want to, to bring out and to the appeal of such messages many of which are disseminated through robot farms or through uh, evangelical churches. So their, their low-budget, amateurish look confers an air of authenticity to the new movements of what we might call the hyper-right, to play off of the idea of hyper-reality as, as the an inability of, of, of uh, a consciousness in technologically advanced societies to discern between reality and its simulation, which is, of course, a big idea in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, the, the visual language of institutional responses to this sort of stuff, the sort of slick and polished uh, uh, look of, uh, you know, uh, journalism and so on, uh, 
invites skepticism in, in some corners. Whereas this, on the other hand, comes across as anti-system, right? Allowing the leaders behind them to stand apart from the establishment while their unpopular policies and powerful economic interests become, uh, stay beneath the fray. So just to, 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 uh, to close, um, as someone who works on urbanization and, and culture, uh, to me an, an urgent question, we are talking a little bit about this, is um, the urban forms and spatial logics of the contemporary world, saturated with cheapened telecommunications technologies, gated communities, widespread segregation, miserably long commutes, especially for the poor, for the urban poor, all lend themselves to social lives and encounters with difference mediated by screens. So what happens when screens displace streets or public spaces as the primary interface for politics? And Brazil might be providing us with uh, a few initial and, and terrifying um, possibilities. So Brazil uh, achieved uh, remarkable gains between 1988 and 2015 in building a democracy. We could well be witnessing the last gasp of anxious masculinity, of homophobia, of race-based resentment. Um, and it could be that uh, disinformation campaigns on social media of the type we've seen won't be as effective now that uh, many more are aware and that we can devise uh, preventive uh, mechanisms. But as the deforestation of the Amazon intensifies, as institutions erode, and as the militarized police increasingly attacks and kills favela populations in many Brazilian cities, we should not underestimate the destructiveness nor take for granted our ability to recover from it. Thank you. I want to uh, start by saying I completely agree with you, Bruno, on the, this kind of theme of anxious masculinity that you've, you've noted in, um, in Brazil with Bolsonaro and uh, the high stakes of this kind of uh, radical kind of uh, not just erosion, but, you know, uh, really mindful destruction of institutions, yeah. political institutions, as well as social and, as you say, environmental institutions. And so I think this is this is a question that, that expands far beyond the particular countries that we're looking at right now. Um, I want to tell you that my take on the rise of strongman comes really as, a, as an outsider, as someone who doesn't typically study strong men, but rather strong women. So I hope to, to give you a little uh, maybe counterintuitive insight um, on, on why exactly we are where we are looking at, at the rise of Modi in India. So uh, I want to I try to do four things. Uh, the first is to explain a little bit more about who Modi is. Uh, and, and I think what's actually more interesting is the, the organizational biography of this uh, militant uh, organization that's really been uh, quite effective at bringing him to power, the Rashtriya Swamasevak Sangh, or RSS. Uh, and, after that, that brief uh, introduction, say, you know, why do we see this now? Uh, why, why is this uh, kind of tolerance and love for strongmen extending from places like Brazil to India? And I'm going to argue that it's a result of three uncertainties that we see, uh, at least in the, in the Indian context, but I think they, they expand more globally. Uh, so typically, they've been, they've been talked about uh, as a, a set of 
forces that changed in the late 80s and early 90s in India that are known as Mandal, Mandir, and Market. Um, I'm going to actually propose that we think about three R's instead of three M's, so uh, response to reservations that have propelled women into power in the state, mm. uh, resistance by women very effectively outside the state, and the removal of the license Raj, or the, the kind of um, expansion of the global free market. What I think is also really important is not just how we've gotten there, but what, you know, what, what the dynamics look like right now. Mm -hmm. And I would say that there's a really interesting dynamic at play that I address in, in my forthcoming book about uh, women's resistance, how they're reshaping the state thanks to these quotas or reservations, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the violence, the violent backlash that uh, we see across the board, which I think starts within the household, but expands to, to the state and to the international domain. And then the final thing that I'm going to try to roughly suggest some proposals that I hope we can discuss more in the Q&A, is where do we go from here? Uh, so the state under Modi has this unique opportunity to mobilize action informally via social media in a way very similar to the case of Brazil. And uh, what I think we need to, uh, to think seriously about is how we move out of this traditional space where the state is the protection racket, mm. uh, not just in the mobilization of, uh, of physical force, uh, but here mobilization of social power uh, through the, the politics of fear. And I, I think ideally we get to a space where we have alternate ways of, of mobilizing power that avoid these kinds of binaries that are being used right now to destroy institutions that um, are really central to the heart of democracy around the world. Mm. But so first, what about Modi? So I think his is often taken as a story of this personal uplift uh, via the stint of hard work. And I would say there's also kind of nudged in around the edges this multi muscular Hindu principle uh, that kind of has buoyed him up and clever business acumen uh, applied with cutting-edge technology. So he starts as a grocer's son, uh, and, and what he's most famous for is his first occupation as a chaiwala. And I think one of his most effective uh, electoral statements was to say, uh, you know, looking at Congress, the, the prior dominant party, uh, uh, you know, you should think about me as, a, as a, a relevant opponent because I only sell tea. I don't sell our country. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he's positioned himself as someone who has an incredible amount of integrity that comes in part from this very poor background that he, he began with. Uh, but how he makes it into politics is explicitly through the RSS. He starts off at the age of eight in their children's wing, and then uh, advances at the age of 21 uh, to formally become a, a pracharak or a, a campaigner. And then after decades in the service of the RSS, enters the, the BJP, which is a, a slightly more moderate uh, Hindu nationalist party, and is able to kind of stay in politics and ascend much faster than, than many expected, in part because he has this electoral machine behind him of the RSS. And so there are clearly advantages for him. Uh, they, they describe themselves as galvanizing the, mo the vote for Modi, guaranteeing 100% turnout in elections uh, on behalf of the, the Hindu ideal. Um, but the downside is that, that, that Modi is also painted as being quite active in, uh, if not directly organizing, at the very least sanctioning and permitting uh, anti-Muslim riots in Gujarat in 2002 that resulted in roughly 1,000 deaths. So the way that he's brought himself into, 
into power. And I would say there's there's uh, some quite damning kind of secondhand material on him as saying that these kinds of punishment of Muslims was necessary to teach them a lesson after 60 Hindus had been burned alive in a uh, as they were were trying to go on a Hindu pilgrimage. So the way that he's moved from this kind of view as a, a radical, violent extremist who uh, had his visa revoked to come to, to the US as well as other things was through some very clever rebranding. And this involves both the, his business kind of prowess as well as uh, his Hindu fundamentals. So his, uh, the name that he's popularly known as is Namo, which is also a Sanskrit salutation that's usually reserved for, for deities. Uh, so he hasn't given up that side of him. But what he did that really got national attention was in 2008, effectively negotiating to have the Tata Motor, Motors produce this wildly popular tiny car, the Nano, uh, not in, in West Bengal, where it had been uh, production had been stymied thanks to large-scale protests about the legality of uh, the, the government, the state taking over land for, for this corporate purpose. And in a matter of days, organized all the land permits that were necessary and kind of magically removed all the red tape uh, that uh, enabled this new form of very effective uh, jobs to be created for, for the, the citizens of Gujarat, his constituency. Uh, the, the final thing that he did that uh, makes him unique is his use of social media. And so most uh, obviously, he's used uh, this 3D hologram technology to prote project himself uh, as of the 2014 <coughs> elections initially in 53 locations at once simultaneously across the state of Gujarat. And this was so kind of effective, not just as, as speaking to, to individuals, but convincing them uh, of his kind of magical technological powers that uh, there are stories of roadblocks blocks being erected across some villages to try to prevent this deity from leaving at the end of, of his election rallies. Um, so he does that. He also is the second most followed uh, leader in terms of Twitter, second only to Barack Obama, with 12 million followers. And I would say the, the dark side of this is that not only is he very effective at, at, at reaching this kind of new uh, socially literate youth and, uh, and an international kind of voting population, but he's also created a very effective campaign at monitoring how the media reports on him. So there's a, a reportedly a staff of 200 individuals that regularly comb the media uh, to make sure that he's portrayed uh, in the the most kind of positive light possible by uh, the range of, of more and less independent Indian media providers. So this technology isn't just technology for technology's sake. So the final thing that I think is worth noting about Modi himself is that he's been very explicit about the fact that he's not only using this, this technology as a uh, campaign platform for him or a, a campaign tool, but actually that he's going to use this as a way to revolutionize education across rural India, uh, to revolutionize the delivery of information that's important for agricultural production, and, and more broadly for, for bringing India into the modern age such that it's uh, respected not just internally but externally that it, it really shows itself to be a, a, a player on the world stage. So there's much more that I could say about his foreign policy. Right now I just want to focus on the domestic policy because I think there's already a lot there. 
And so the second thing I want to say about who we're dealing with is to, to say a little bit about the RSS. So this uh, they see themselves in, according to, to many portraits. So particularly, I think um, I'm 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 not a scholar of, of the the Hindu right, uh, but I I think people like Thomas Boom Hansen, who's written the Saffron Wave, does a, a great job of of profiling him as the RSS, as does Christophe Schafferlow and many others. So they're often portrayed as this small, dedicated band of patriotic warriors uh, who are fundamentally engaged and committed to, to building this new man uh, who's been born in out of this forge of partition. So the, the kind of myth of origin for the RSS is that they, they came out of uh, this one small town in, in Maharashtra as a way to ensure that there was a self-defense of Hindus against these uh, Muslim attackers. And so they organized militarily, they beat up the, the Muslim evil kind of marauders, and they ended communal conflict in this one uh, town in Nagpur. So they uh, have a highly kind of effective military as well as ideological training that they start very young, uh, exclusively for, for men, though they have spin-offs that are, are available for women. And what I think is, is really important about them is their reluctance to enter politics for, for quite a long time, uh, up until explicitly 1977, uh, in the wake of the uh, Indira Gandhi's removal of the emergency. And the reason why they say that they're, they're kind of uh, outside of or above politics is because they see themselves as the legitimate guardian of Hindu society. And so there's just one quote that I would like to share uh, from uh, one of their most effective ideologues, uh, Golwarkar, who, in his words, says, let us shake off the, no the present-day emasculating notions and become real living men, bubbling with national pride, living and breathing, breathing the grand ideas of service, self-reliance, and dedication in the cause of our dear and sacred motherland. Today, more than anything else, mother needs such men young, intelligent, dedicated, and more than all, viral and masculine. And such are the men who make history, uh, men with a capital M. So I would say, you know, it's, we're really doing a disservice to the RSS and to the, the machine that's brought Modi to power not to recognize this particular brand of patriarchy uh, that they're, they're actively mobilizing. Mm. So we have two more minutes. I'm going to try to to just highlight what I think, where, where women come into this uh, at this point. So the real action of when we see the RSS mobilizing an explicitly Hindu vote is in 1984 around the campaign to rebuild this temple for the Hindu god of Ram in Ayodhya, exactly where there was a Muslim uh, mosque, the Babre Masjid. And I think this moment is important because it's happening just at the same time that we see the rise of women's movements as a part of this democratic revolution that's more broadly discussed in the in the 80s and 90s and so I think if I had to say one thing about I'll, I'll try to say two things one for each minute about the rise of women so the first is about reservations so we see here uh, this is often discussed in the context of uh, caste politics and the salience of as caste as, as creating new voting blocks uh, but this is also about gender and so something that's important to note is women's electoral agency 
first in bringing Indira Gandhi back into power in 1980 post-emergency. And this was taken up by challengers to the Congress party. So in 1983, the Telugu Dasam party and Andhra Pradesh came out of nowhere. Nine months after their formation, uh, they, they, took back, uh, they took over a, a traditional Congress strong, stronghold. They took over the chief ministership of Andhra Pradesh. And they did so uh, mainly through mobilizing women to vote through a very effective campaign that involved a commitment to implementing reservations for women at the local level and equalizing women's inheritance rights. This was taken over by Hegde and Karnataka in 87 and then became a national ag agenda in 1991 that led to the constitutional amendments that made uh, reservations for women at the local level and decentralized government more broadly with reservations for formerly untouchables or scheduled castes as well, uh, reality as of 1992-93. And the, the second thing that happens at this time is these massively effective women's movements for first against dowry violence, uh, second against rape, and third in favor of feminist equality more broadly. So one of the responses uh, that's been most effective by the not both Congress and uh, the Hindu right has been to mobilize violence as a tool to reshape people's fundamental allegiances. So the Babri Masjid uh, organization of a, a range of riots uh, starting in the mid-80s and continuing through to, uh, to this millennium have been incredibly effective at kind of neutralizing the new power that people gained through reservations, both as castes and as women, and, and making the, the kind of existential crisis at the heart of uh, Hindu consciousness come to the fore. What I'll say from my own experience is that I think this isn't the end of the story. So what I, what I document, and I'm happy to go into to much greater depth, is a fundamental revolution in what the state is and how it works, thanks to women's reservations. And I mean this in three ways. First, that they mobilize women's informed engagement to demand rights and entitlements, particularly I look at uh, rights to property, but this extends much beyond that. Secondly, they expand what the public sphere means uh, and create formal space for women to bring their, uh, make their claims effectively on the state. And finally, they repurpose the private sphere such that intra-household bargaining is I would say, finally recognized as an uh, inherently political action. And this, I think, gets to the heart of this, um, this anxious masculinity that Bruno has addressed, this notion that the ground is, is shifting underneath uh, those who are traditionally entitled. So these are men from all walks of life. This is, um, in particular, urban educated elites, male and female. This is also traditional kind of uh, small traders and, and, and business castes who themselves see their secure entitlements through a direct access to patriarchal power in terms of uh, representation, the uh, access to the organs of the state, uh, in terms of control of property, and in terms of control of the household through a, a very particular gendered hierarchy all shifting and all kind of disintegrating before their eyes because of this reshaping of the state from above uh, through reservations, from below through women's activism, and then from outside through the uh, increasing access that people have to the global marketplace, where women have, uh, have turned out to be more effective at harnessing 
global economic opportunities than men have. And so this is a moment where I think the solution is figuring out how we come up with integrative bargains, whereby we realize that recognizing new forms of new mobility, recognizing new forms of empowerment can bring us to places where we're, we're collectively better off uh, and we're also all individually better off than we were under a, the prior inegalitarian order. But this is a, a very tall order. I think thus far we see attempts at this through the microfinance movement, through people like Nitin Kumar's attempts to give bicycles to women and say if women have greater mobility physically, we'll see greater development that benefits everyone, and through Modi, through attempts at uh, sanitation as something that's, that's supposed to especially benefit women, but has particularly problematic undertones of, um, of, of caste-based discrimination, um, hierarchy, and violence. And the, the concern I see, the reason why I think this is going to be a really tall order to achieve, is because there's a, a parallel narrative about the rape crisis in India, which I think is, is not just sanctioned by Modi's BJP, but is actually mobilized by social media in this, uh, this informal space uh, where he is not directly as acting as the state, but has access to some very, very effective uh, social organs with, the, with now with the power of the state behind them to ensure that fear is still a relevant uh, tool to prevent women from entering politics. And so the last, I just want to give you two statistics to end, which is uh, as of 2014, the UN women uh, had estimated that 48% of women who are engaged in politics, either as elected officials or campaigners, have themselves experienced physical attacks. And 60% of women across the country in India say that they, they will not engage in politics uh, because they're afraid of the violence that they'll face if they enter it. So I think we're at a moment where things can change, but there's a, there's a lot of resistance to that happening. Thanks. So I, I've done quite a bit of work on Indian Brazil, and I've been tracking recent uh, developments and following the press and w w the most recent sort of academic work uh, touching on these issues. And there's been lots of discussion and theories, et cetera, about what brought Modi and the BJP to power and what explains Bolsonaro. And I have to say these are two of the most original and innovative analyses I've heard. And in particular, I think this, this question of gender and, and anxious masculinity is is really important and hasn't received much comment in the existing literature. So I'm, I'm glad you guys highlighted that. I'm going to try to um, step back a little bit from the, the, these two figures because it's, it's easy to get sort of you know um, fixated on the, these two personalities who are, who are central to what's going on undoubtedly but were made possible by underlying structural conditions and I want to I want to point to what are some of the parallel underlying structural conditions Max Weber famously said in times of extraordinary crisis um, w what you might anticipate to see is the return of either millenarian ideologies or self-proclaimed prophets and we have self-proclaimed prophets here but both of which dabble in these kind of millenarian reinventions of the nation, et cetera. Um, and so the question is, what are the underlying social conditions that made the rise of these two characters uh, possible? And I want to identify uh, five structural variables and then flesh them out a little bit. The, f the first, and the one that's gotten almost no commentary at all, um, in more so in Brazil, but not at all in India, um, is that both of these movements are essentially about preserving the welfare state for the deserving. 
and the rhetoric should be familiar. Uh, both have built significant welfare states, um, and now there's a bit of a backlash. And, and the rhetoric is always about there's a bunch of undeserving people, you know, Muslims in India. Um, we, we have endless categories here in the United States um, uh, that get targeted. And then in Brazil, it's the banditos and the feminists, et cetera. Um, and, and I do think this is very much, in that sense, a class backlash against the, the universalism and the expansion of, of welfare policies. So t the, in the 10 years before Modi came to power, there were five constitutional amendments in India that guaranteed the right to food, the right to education, the right to transparency, and the right to work. Uh, this is the first time India's ever really ventured down the road of building the basic architecture of a welfare state. And as we heard from Bruno, Brazil under the PT, and even beginning with Cardoso, is the single most successful uh, effort to build a comprehensive welfare state in, in the 20th century, right? At, at a time when everyone else was going neoliberal, Brazil was going in exactly the opposite direction, and inequality came down, poverty came down, et cetera. Uh, second, cultural closure. I mean, these are both movements um, uh, trying to redefine the, the, the national identity away from a civic identity to a more culturally based identity um, and a rejection of pluralism and a rejection of the basic foundational concepts of, of liberalism, uh, which were well entrenched in, 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 in both uh, polities uh, up until this moment. Uh, third, they, they both represent in somewhat different ways, but nonetheless uh, an effort to revalorize traditional uh, relations. Family, uh, as we've heard, uh, gender, patriarchy, military, the caste system, and of course religion, Hindutva, and, and the rise of evangelicals. Both are, um, as state structures, relying increasingly on a combination of corporatism and patronage to support their constituencies. And this is explicitly in opposition to the universalism and, and the, 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 the rights-based distribution that the previous regimes had, had tried to entrench. And then the fifth or sixth point, I'm losing track now, um, and you both touched on this, and I think this is critically important. B both regimes are... They came to power democratically, you know, by and large, they're still constrained by constitutions, checks and balances, etc. But both are resorting to village, vigilante violence. And in India, you know, I, and there's a whole literature on this for the United States, but uh, Modi came to power sort of riding a wave of riots uh, that orchestrated by the BJP, including Babri Masjid, etc. Um, but we know that lynchings are much more effective. Lynchings send uh, a very clear message that if you if you're out of line, you're likely. And the RSS and the, the cow protection squads, etc. And then Bolsonaro. I mean, his own sons have been involved in in, in vigilante activities um, in in um, Rio. Um, so the, these are quite extraordinary similarities, and and I, I think they're so similar because both countries have passed through uh, recent histories in in the democratic period that are again strikingly um, uh, similar. The, the larger argument I, I want to make to explain this particular moment is it, we have to understand both Brazilian and Indian democracy. And remember, this is the, 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 the largest and the third largest democracy in the world. And these are 
unlikely democracies, right? These were democracies that were built against the backdrops of the worst forms of inequality in the world. Right? And it doesn't matter how you measure it, whether it's genies or income, or if it's uh, racially or caste-based exclusions or gender inequalities for that matter. These are arguably, along with South Africa, some of the most unequal places in the world. And yet they built vibrant, quite successful democracies. But these were limited democracies. From 46 up until the mid-80s in India, uh, democracy was pretty much dominated by the Congress Party and upper caste groups, and it was alliance, an alliance of rural oligarchs and an emerging industrial bourgeoisie and elements of the middle class. It's exactly the same coalition that ruled Brazil largely through the 80s, the famous social bloc, and it was a very limited form of democracy. In, in Brazil, the vote was actually restricted by uh, literacy requirements and other mechanisms. In India, it wasn't so much restricted, but the role of clientelism basically demobilized lower class groups. All of that changed dramatically in both countries in the 80s. And, and again, the parallels here are, are really striking. So the Pite coalition that comes out of the, the authoritarian period uh, f following Cardoso is really Lula's encompassing coalition of the poor. And this is really the rural and the urban poor for the first time in Brazilian history being mobilized as a political and electoral bloc. And they re-elect the Pite to power three times in a row. Um, likewise, in India, the 80s is known as the second democratic upsurge, so b between the, the rise of affirmative action politics, you, you see all these new political parties emerged that are being led by OBCs, which is other backward castes, it's a sort of middle caste category, but also some parties being led by Dalits. And for the first time, the lower caste and the lower classes are being mobilized on their own terms. And this represents a real threat to elite interests. And in both cases, you get the, the Congress uh, UPA government that ruled from 2002 2014 and, and started building this rights-based welfare state and likewise in Brazil. You, and then you get the backlash, right? And the backlash is in, in part, I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, if, if Marx didn't exist, you'd have to invent him to think about Brazilian politics, right? Because every time there's a turn to authoritarianism, it's essentially the bourgeoisie saying, oh, we'll give up the right to rule for the right to stay really, really rich, right? And this is another one of those backlashes. But of course, the bourgeoisie or the, the Brahmins and the upper castes in India and Brazil you know, can't win elections without appealing to broader constituencies, much like the Republicans can't win uh, without going beyond the, the, the 5%. Um, and so the, 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 the appeals by elites in, in, in both cases have been broadened to the, what Modi himself calls the neo-middle class. Right, so the, the very success of the policies of, of the Congress uh, in growing India and the very success of the PT in making Brazil more inclusionary created a, a neo-middle class, and that neo-middle class has now turned. It's turned against uh, the very policies that helped elevate it into a position of inclusion. I don't want, I don't want to say relative privilege. And what's really striking to me is if you look at the electoral maps, um, and I actually have... These are Bruno's electoral maps, which are much better than mine. But this is the U.S. story, and you're all familiar with the story. But the point is here that global cities vote Democratic and against Trump, right? So Trump is the heartland. It's rural. This is Brazil. Global cities are all in the, the, the big, the, the important one, the financial centers, the manufacturing centers, Sao Paulo, Rio. They're all in the south. They all voted for Bolsonaro. So these are the cosmopolitan, you know, really advanced, sophisticated places, and they're the ones, you know, voting for Bolsonaro. 
And likewise, and I don't think people quite realize this about India, first of all, to Rachel's point about gender, the BJP has no presence in the South, particularly in Kerala and Tamil Nadu, which are the two states that have made the most progress on women's rights of all the Indian states. And so genders, you know, they got past that. I, I don't want to say all men there aren't anxious about, you know, being threatened by women's empowerment, but they're, politically they're past that. They're also past caste politics because they did caste reforms back in the 40s and 50s. So it's in the north that's much more patriarchal, much more caste-ridden that the BJP gets the most traction. But you can't quite see it here. But you know, Bangalore, Mumbai, and Delhi, these are the three most global cities in India, right? Delhi is the capital city. It has all the big mega infrastructure stuff. Mumbai is the finance capital of India. And Bangalore, of course, is the IT capital of the world. Bangalore, the, the, the predominant language in Bangalore today is English. It's not Kannada. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's Kannada, and there's Tamil, and there's some Urdu speakers. But you know, everyone speaks English, more or less, because it's all IT, IT, IT. They all voted BJP. Right? These are the most cosmopolitan, wealthy, English-speaking cities in India, and they all voted for Hindu nationalist political party. Right, So it's, it's the exact opposite of the phenomenon of Trumpism in the United States of America. And I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, and although I, I want to finish with a few comments uh, to finish on a more optimistic note about where I think this might be going. But the, the general point here is that these new middle class, if you think about the nature of the global economy today, so India stopped creating manufacturing jobs in 2001. The entire world has been uh, de-industrializing um, in this century. All the new jobs, of course, are in the service sector. It's all about the informational economy. And the middle class, of course, is the sort of privileged class that has this quasi-monopoly over scarce cultural capital, as Bourdieu would call it. Um, and a lot of the affirmative action politics in Brazil and India have been about blacks in Brazil or lower castes uh, getting into public institutions. And all of a sudden, these institutions that were the exclusive preserve and privilege of whites in Brazil or, or the upper castes in India are being invaded by lower castes and blacks in Brazil. You, you hear this line all the time from elites that the airports now look like bus stations, right? And there's this real sense of being invaded, right? That our, our, our precious, privileged cultural spaces are now being infiltrated from below. And in cities, especially global cities, this is especially pronounced because the return on hoarding educational capital is extremely high. Right, if you make it in the IT sector in India, you're, you've really made it. And in order to make it, you need to go to one of the technical schools, et cetera. And so this threat from below is really acute. And so I do think this is in part, of course, there's other elements to it, but in class terms, this is really about this new neo-middle class hoarding its, its, its privileged access to scarce educational resources and, and maximizing their value in what are increasingly global economies. Now, having said all of that, I want to argue that I, I suspect Brazil and India are going to go in two very different directions. And I'm much more optimistic for Brazil. And I know the Brazilians will be like, what does he know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, but in comparison to India, right? And for a number of reasons. So first, Bolsonaro has no discipline and no base. I mean, he's, he, electorally speaking, his election 
was was an accident. It was the implosion of the, the, the neoliberal parties. It was Lula being in prison. It was some idiot stabbing him a month before the election. He gets to finish the campaign tweeting from his hospital bed like a martyr. It was the fact that the PT was really late in recruiting someone to run against him, etc. Um, yes, he's got a social base, but it's not an organized social. His own party is very, is very small and it's very fragmented. I think Brazil, maybe more so than any other democracy in the global south, maybe any democracy in the world, has an extraordinarily strong rights culture. And of course, this movement is a reaction against that rights culture, right? So the banditos are the feminists, and they're the LGBTQ activists, and they're the communists, and the intellectuals, and the academics. But these, this rights-based culture has created some very strong uh, civil society institutions that are horizontally connected and are going to simply dissolve because Bolsonaro narrow has now taken over. Um, I also think there are real limits to white identity politics in Brazil. I mean, there's a, a sort of an electoral uh, limit that's, that's problematic. Um, and then finally, and this is something we don't talk enough about, um, although this map sort of underscores the point, you know, the running joke in the U.S. is that the largest opposition party in the United States is California. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think it's more so than anything else, it's local government, state governments that have been the bulwark of of resistance against Trumpism um, and, and this effort to, to erode democratic institutions. I think that's going to be true in Brazil as well. I mean, what, one of the great achievements of Brazilian democracy in the last 30 years was strengthening local government. And yes, some of those local governments are now controlled by Bolsonaro allies, etc. But there's a tremendous amount of institutional resources in local government. Likewise, in India, the holdouts are regional. Uh, Kerala, Tamil Nadu, to a lesser extent, Andhra. Um, and, and, and these are huge and complex places. And, and the idea that someone at the center can, can, can control and, and maintain power for long, I think, is, is problematic. Um, India, though, worries me a lot more. A, because Modi is a genuine charismatic authority figure. 30% uh, of Indians who voted for the BJP voted for Modi. They didn't vote for the BJP. They voted for the person of Modi, who, by the way, claims he has a 56-inch chest. So talk about masculine anxiety. Um, so he, he's an, as Rachel, you know, underscored in, in her body, he's, he's an extraordinary figure in his own right and has been cultivated as this extraordinary figure for quite some time. Second, and again, Rachel said this, but it, it needs to be emphasized, he has a real party. He has six million cadres. You know, at, at the BJ, he doesn't have to say go lynch Muslims. The cadres are doing that for him, right? Because he wants to look good and clean vis-a-vis -vis markets. He wants to attract investment, etc. But the base can do it because they're organized to do these things. The majoritarian identity in India is very real. Hindus are 85% of the population, so cultivating a Hindutva ideology has has real resonance in a way that white. Uh, privileged politics in Brazil may not be as electorally successful. Despite everything Rachel said about uh, women being mobilized, the rights culture in India is still highly contested, and a lot of the rhetoric is about privilege and status and not about rights. It's about merit and virtue, etc. So I do think there are significant differences there, and, and, and the fact that the BJP is so programmatic, so organized, and the BJP has been preparing for this for 70 years. Right? This is a movement that has deep roots in contemporary Indian history. Again, Bolsonaro is more, I think, a moment and a crisis and to some degree an accident. And the media have been quite critical. The courts have been pushing back, uh, much less so in India. So those are the quick points of comparison I wanted to make. 
but I think we've already taken too much time. So with that, I'm going to end and open it up to questions. And I think we'll, we'll take a series of questions and in particular ask uh, Bruno and Rachel to respond.